time, wrong place, mistakes. Cold case, now I chase, no breaks. Unsafe is the faith in the faith. It's a cold case. It's a cold, cold case. You're as sick as your secrets, and a lie can't conceal it. So Welcome to Cold Case MHS, where real education meets real life. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, an instructor of Cold Case MHS, with my co-host, Ashlyn, and we thank you for listening. Growing up, all teenagers have a place they like to hang out and party. In a small mining and farming town, these places can be an open field, near a lake, far away from parents and other adults from town. New Paris, Ohio is exactly that type of place. In a rural area away from town in July of 1990, that's exactly what was going on. A birthday bash with most of the townies there to have a great time. As the night winds down, it forever will stick in the memories of those present. For this was the night the party lights went out forever for Lisa Buckley. First thing I want to talk about with this episode is the fact that I have a co-host who I didn't really introduce very well the last time. Ashlyn, here's your opportunity to introduce yourself and tell everybody why you joined this podcast. I'm Ashlyn. I'm a junior at Mason High School. You asked me to, so I was like, oh, of True, course, I do yeah, that. I'll help you out. I mean, obviously I joined the class out of an interest for it, forensics that is. I feel like the experience and like the situation that we're in, just like kind of having a conversation and being introduced to like interesting case details and stuff like that, that's not something I really experienced in forensics. So getting the opportunity to build my education and learning further than in the forensics classroom with a bunch of other students and just being one-on-one and to be able to have interesting conversations that I wasn't able to have before. The good thing about Ashlyn is that she gets to spend all next year with me too. So <laughs> uh, we'll see how that goes. One of the reasons I wanted to bring her on is that next year I'm hoping that she can help bring people along when we get into this process again. So I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me. And we'll get started with the show. Warning to our listeners. This episode unfortunately deals with the sexual assault and murder of a beautiful young woman named Lisa Buckley. In the description of her autopsy report, there are some graphic terms used to describe the type of sexual assault. We only use this information to show how the assault of Ms. Buckley can put us in the mind and the emotions of her killer. July 7, 1990, a seemingly fun birthday party turned out to be the last night for Lisa Buckley. Among drinks and laughs, horrible secrets were kept, soon to be found the next morning. Around midnight, just outside New Paris, Ohio, on Cedar Lake, her friends noticed Lisa was missing but thought nothing of it, entirely unaware of the dangers that lay ahead for their beloved friend. Lisa Buckley, a 20-year-old woman, was part of a group known for their wild partying, and to no one's surprise, a birthday party was the perfect place to have fun. The night of July 7, 1990, Lisa, her friends, and around 80 other people attended a party at Cedar Lake celebrating a friend's birthday. The night of the party, Lisa was wearing a halter top, pink shoes, and colorful shorts. A group of people had decided to sleep on the beach and clean up the party the next morning. As Guy, Billy, Lee Scott, and Jerry York were cleaning up, they noticed what they initially thought was a frisbee. 
After coming closer to the frisbee, they soon realized it was a body, Lisa Buckley's body. Despite bloating and deformity, Scott was able to easily identify the body. York then had wanted to leave, but Scott had asked him to stay because he had touched the body. Scott had been at the party that night, but York had not. Don Sutton was the one who found an off-duty police officer, and later that day, the Preble County Sheriff's Department sent two boats to search for evidence, but found nothing. So, when we initially did the investigation, we thought it was weird that they would think like an entire body was a frisbee, and but then we like realized they, the shorts made it seem like it was a body. Scott's other reasoning was that he saw both, Le both of Lisa's legs going through one short hole, so he thought that looked like a frisbee. I feel like even if you saw two legs through one pant hole, you would not think it's a frisbee. Yeah, because that doesn't really make sense yeah. also. I don't know, it was weird. And also I thought, who decided to sleep over on the beach to pick up? And if it was Scott's idea, maybe he was setting up so he could like wear himself up and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I remember when we first listened to the recording uh, of the students talking, and we were as confused as they were, <laughs> if not maybe a little more. We theorized that if there was possibly a frisbee at the party that night and it looks somewhat similar to what he saw, it's a, it's a possibility that he could mistake that for it. But otherwise, we kind of find it hard to imagine that something like that could resemble a frisbee. Yeah, I mean, when you think of a body being in the water, you would think that's going to be pretty big. Considering they said it was only like 15 feet from the from the bank so yeah it does seem kind of strange that they would mistake that for a frisbee but we weren't in that situation either during the party many people claimed they had not seen either buckley nor scott around midnight buckley's friend worried and looking for signs of her friend noticed that scott's girlfriend was also looking for scott when scott was seen again he was wet but buckley had not been seen for the rest of the night Scott had unclear reasoning as to why he was wet, but claimed he was breaking up a fight between two partygoers around midnight, and an anonymous statement admitted another witness was also engaged in sexual activity with Buckley. Tony Young, the main witness, also claimed to have seen Scott and Buckley together near the lake but moved on, not wanting to be seen by Scott. I thought it was weird that just because he was breaking up a fight that it was that he was wet. Yeah. Why would you get wet breaking up a fight? He never explains. If he was breaking up a fight and, like, something spilled, yeah, but he never says that. Yeah. He just says he was breaking up a fight. And I think this was, like, biggest evidence against him in the case, because, like, why would he be wet? And Lisa was found in the, the lake, so, like, that's, like, the biggest piece of evidence against him. And he doesn't have a clear reason to why he was wet that night. Yeah. But there was, on record, like, a fight actually took place. During the autopsy, Dr. Lee Daniel Lehman noticed that the injuries to Buckley's face and head were linked to sexual assault. Reports show that Buckley's anal injuries were due to an object such as a bottle or a stick rather than a penis. Buckley also had scratches on her inner thigh and abrasion all over her body. Dr. Lehman concluded that Buckley was beaten unconscious before she was dumped into the lake to drown. Okay, so the autopsy report brings up a very unusual situation. One that's pretty uncomfortable to talk about with my co-host, but 
The fact that she was sexually assaulted with an object kind of leads to what type of person we're looking for. So what does that tell you? We were thinking that maybe it's someone that's filled with a lot of rage, trying to inflict the most pain possible. Other things that it could possibly be is a countermeasure for not wanting to leave any unwanted traces of DNA on the body. We also think it could possibly be impotence, physically unable to sexually assault her with himself. And I feel like the most interesting approach here would be a female attacker. We're also thinking that just the possibility of this is because we know that she was having a confrontation with a female during the time period around her death, which makes it more probable that it could be a female attacker. We were talking about before how the attacker would be filled with a lot of rage. The use of an object to inflict pain could be a sign of that rage coming from a female. Three months after the murder, Thomas Riley hosted a party that Scott attended. Both Riley and Angie York, those attending that party, testified that Scott had asked the room if they believed he had killed Buckley and if they would turn him in. People responded with a yes. I think it's interesting that he even asked the question in the first place. I know, it's drawing a lot of attention to him, and that's like not what he wants right now. Yeah, and it's almost self-convicting, especially if later he believes that he he's innocent. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if he was just trying to get like, oh, what do people think about me? But it was kind of weird that he said it to everyone and not just like certain people. And he never defends himself either, which is also odd. I feel like the most difficult thing to understand with this is why would he bring so much attention to himself? Especially when people are already suspecting because of how suspicious he's been in the past. I was just thinking like, was he trying to brag? Was he trying to figure out who his friends were or what? You know, I think in some situations people react differently and for him, he's already got a lot of people looking at him. He's well known in town. And he might be even just getting mad the fact that people are looking at him and he's just throwing it out there. Hey, how many of you really think I did it? Um, I'm not sure that he's admitting to anything. I just think that he's probably pissed at this point. Jenna Spangler, Scott's girlfriend at the time, had hosted a New Year's Eve party. Angie York says she was also at the party and claims that in a conversation, Scott confessed to killing Buckley. During the summer, Scott was at the Triangle Bar in Greenville, Ohio, with Jason Burkhart and Kevin Gray. Gray was friends with both Scott and Burkhart, but they didn't know each other. While the three of them were smoking outside, they were discussing some of their crimes about themselves. Burkhart had been charged with attempted murder, and Gray commented that it was messed up Burkhart was getting in trouble for something he didn't do, while Scott was getting away with something he did do. Later in the conversation, Burkhart asked Scott what had happened the night of the party, and he claimed he sexually assaulted Buckley as a result of being led on, claiming that he took advantage of the situation and took care of it when Buckley said she would tell the police. Burkhart also asked why Scott wanted to be the first to find the body. Scott said he was worried he had left something at the scene and wanted to be able to explain any evidence that might be connected to him. So he confessed multiple times. It's kind of obvious that he's going to be convicted. Why was it such a shock to the public? You know what I mean? Like, why was there any chance that he could be innocent? What? Like, it was like a shock him and, like, his side. Like, they were all shocked. You know what I mean? Not... Yeah. Like, Buckley's family was wanting him to be convicted so bad, but, like, Scott's family and Scott himself believed he was innocent, yet he confessed to it. So why were they shocked if he confessed? Yeah, I don't know. 
And also, when Scott said that he wanted to be the first to find the body, that might explain why they were sleeping over at the beach. But we still don't know if it was Scott's idea or not to and, sleep over. Yeah. And also, the autopsy showed that anal rape was with the means of a stick or a bottle. If this is accurate, why would Scott allegedly take care of being led on without the corner seeing indications of penile assault? Why would you take care of sexual feelings with a non-sexual object? Yeah, that's true. With this evidence, Guy Billy Lee Scott was charged and convicted of murder, anal rape, and misdemeanor assault of Lisa Buckley on February 18, 1992. But to this day, Scott claims he is innocent. Scott has appealed to the Ohio 12th District, the Ohio Supreme Court, a post-conviction relief with the Butler County Common Police Court, and then again with the Ohio 12th District and the Supreme Court. In 1999, he also petitioned for a writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio, which means that he is requesting to see if his de detention is lawful. Although they dismissed his petition, they allowed him to appeal to the 6th District in 2002, but they also denied his petitions. In the appeal, Scott explained why he believes the court system failed in convicting him. So this may seem like really strange activity by Scott, considering now that he's in jail and he says that he's innocent. And really, he might have some evidence to prove that he is. Scott bragged a lot and he had open conversations with a bunch of people. And from those conversations, one would infer that he was involved himself. So it's kind of hard to think how he could possibly appeal to all these courts and get a successful outcome just based on what he's discussed with other people. I find it interesting that he has appealed to multiple courts multiple times over like the past 20 years and yet they keep rejecting him, but mm -hmm. they keep, he keeps appealing over and over again. And I just, I wonder why they're so persistent if there's a possibility that he's guilty and why would he be so persistent if he's guilty. During the party, there were witnesses who claimed that they didn't see Buckley nor Scott around midnight. But Scott claims that there are other witnesses who said they saw him breaking up a fight around this time. Although there are other witnesses for both sides of the story, there's no definite evidence of the whereabouts of Scott around the time of the murder. This conviction was based heavily on circumstantial evidence and witness testimonies, some of which were recanted years later. The testimony of Tony Young was the main one used, he claimed that he saw Buckley and Scout together as, as we discussed before. However, Young had not told the police what he saw until a year later. He also recanted his testimony twice, one in 2009, another in 2015. The witness account that said he saw Scott and Lisa engaging in sexual activities on his way out of the party really needs to be dissected. In his description of what he witnessed, he said that he saw them for about two to three seconds from about 30 feet away. Well, the students looked up the weather from that night and it said it was partly cloudy. Now, partly cloudy may cause a problem, in my opinion. Even if it's clear, the only light that supposedly was in the area would have been a fire from the party, which was far away from where the witness saw them, or the moonlight. This makes me question the validity of this witness event. You mean you can definitely ID Scott and Lisa in the dark for two to three seconds from 30 feet away? I'm not so sure about that. The students and I tested this during the preparation for our end of year presentations. We had students who did not know what Scott or Ronnie Johnson, Lisa's ex-boyfriend, looked like. We measured off 30 feet, turned the lights off, and there was just enough light coming through the blinds to simulate moonlight. 
We held the pictures up of each individual separately that had been blown up to almost life size and then asked them to describe each person they saw after only three seconds. They only could describe that each individual was Caucasian, short hair, and a square face. If you look at Scott and Ronnie, you will see that they look very similar to each other. So can we count on the witness account? I'm not sure we can. It's a cold case. It's a cold, cold case. He claimed that he made up his testimony in an, in an attempt to set up Scott. He had been working with Mary Buckley, Lisa's mother, and Judy Stoner. Judy Stoner was the mother of Ricky Stoner. Ricky was involved in a fight with Scott nine months after Lisa's death. In this fight, Scott ended up shooting Ricky and another individual, killing them both. But Scott didn't end up going to jail for his crimes, as he claimed self-defense. In Young's initial recantation, he claims Judy met with him at her home and asked him to give a false testimony in order for Scott to go to jail and get the punishment he deserves. Later in 2015, he said he met with Judy and Lisa's mother, Mary, at a hotel where Mary said she believed in her heart that Scott had killed her daughter. When we first found out about this, I think it was just like, oh my gosh, of course he's innocent, they, the testimony's false. Yeah, but it was also like a shock that just the testimony would be false in general. Yeah. Because if you go through those lengths, especially when someone's like whole life is on the line, it's just shocking. But then I did read that even though his testimony was recanted, it also was like kind of inconsistent in describing like what actually happened with Mary Buckley and Judy Stoner. Well, even with everything that we found, I feel like Mary Buckley was not mentioned that much. It was this specific instance, and that's about it. Yeah. And I think it gives Mary and Judy enough motive to set up Scott, because, like, he did kill her son, so that just makes her want to send him to jail, so she could be providing false testimonies. And I do believe, like, the Buckley family believes that Scott did it. Mm -hmm. To get justice, they need to convict Scott. At the party in October and the New Year's Eve party that we discussed earlier, Scott claims those statements from Thomas Riley and Angie York contradicted statements from other people like Jerry York, Missy Jordans, and Roger Fugate, either claiming that they never heard incriminating comments from Scott or certain events never happened. Scott also claims the testimony from Jason Burkhart is not the most reliable because Kevin Gray refused to testify and corroborate Burkhart's testimony. There is no way to find out if the comments Burkhart claims Scott stated connected to Buckley's case is factual. Gray also had the chance to have charges dropped and yet still refused to testify, but some claim that is because he and Scott were friends. When Scott and Jerry York found the body the next day, prosecutors found it suspicious that Scott knew that the body was Lisa's. Scott claimed that he had seen her the night before at the party and she was wearing the same clothes. He also claimed that York had been unable to identify her because he had not been at the party and wouldn't know what she was wearing. I think that if Scott had known what she was wearing, that it doesn't really make sense why he would think it's a Frisbee. If he knew her well and knew what she was wearing and saw the color, same color in the lake, wouldn't you assume it might be a friend over a Frisbee? Okay, so they brought up the Frisbee again, and we're just going to touch on it real quick. Yeah, when you're cleaning up after a party, 
it, that supposedly was going on on a farm. Could there possibly have been a frisbee out there that people were throwing around? Sure. And maybe a bright color does kind of lend you to think maybe that's what it is. But the strange part was that Scott immediately, once he figured out that it wasn't a frisbee, went straight to the fact that it was Lisa. And that seems really strange to me. We were kind of talking back and forth and just thinking, I mean, she had bright colored shorts on, and if they're, I think of a toy like a frisbee, you're like, oh, bright colors. So you're like, okay, it's it's a possibility that you think about that. But I think the weirdest thing about that situation is that he was so quick to identify her at a party where there's a ton of people and where like supposedly they didn't interact in front of like a bunch of people because people would have been able to identify being together. So I, I just find it kind of hard to believe that he would be so quick to identify the body like that. Well, and the other thing that's kind of weird is they brought a friend back to clean. I love my friends, but if I wasn't at the party, I'm not going back to clean up. So I thought that was kind of strange. And the fact that he kind of pointed out the fact that, you know, you can't identify her. Mm -hmm. He was talking about how since the friend wasn't at the party, he couldn't really testify that it was strange how Scott was able to identify the body. Or because he didn't know what Scott experienced at the party. And he didn't know situations maybe lisa did something super memorable for everybody and they were like oh those are lisa shorts but he wouldn't be able to know that because he wasn't there anyways wasn't the body was it it, i feel like it was like pretty far away so maybe from a distance it could be a frisbee and that's how and like once they got closer that's when they realized it was lisa and then he was like oh she was wearing something that same color last night maybe it's her Maybe it could be that way, but... But if it's far away on the lake, why would you go through the lengths it takes to get across a lake for a frisbee? Because I think they were cleaning up the party, and I think they weren't allowed into oh, that lake because okay. it isn't in a private property. Yeah. So, like, maybe they were picking up any evidence, and maybe that's why they there was a, a Bic lighter and a red Solo cup. Mm-hmm. And Those so were Scott's, though. The, that, like, people believe could be Scott's yeah. because he was seen at the party the night before with those, and he asked York to clean it up. So what if they were just cleaning it up in general, or Scott had, like, an ulterior motive yeah. as to why? Why was York cleaning up after the party if he didn't even go to it? Maybe it's just friends, and they wanted, he was like, hey, I want to hang out with you guys. To clean up after a party. (laughs) I wasn't allowed to party? I don't know. (laughs) During the initial investigation, the police didn't consider other suspects' whereabouts. Ronnie Johnson was Lisa's ex-boyfriend. He was abusive and also cousins to Lisa Johnson, Lisa Buckley's ex-best friend. They had a big falling out over prom and had an ongoing argument up until Buckley's death. Both Ronnie and Lisa testified in court, but were not questioned in the initial investigation by the sheriff's office. When they testified in court, they were both together the night of the murder, and Ronnie said he was home that night. There were also some witnesses that claimed that another family member, Tommy Johnson, tried to go to that party, but was denied because his family was not welcome. One witness said they saw Ronnie's car at the party, but hadn't seen who was driving. Overall, the police believed there was no need to further investigate the Johnson family. 
October 2020 with the Ohio Innocent Project representing Scott, an organization that works to help free the wrongfully convicted. Scott requested DNA testing from the rape kit and fingernail scrapings from Buckley. The court denied this on the basis that if the DNA tests come back negative, it still does not prove beyond doubt that Scott did not kill Buckley. We recently talked to Donald Caster, staff attorney of the Ohio Innocence Project and is representing Scott. When we were talking to him, we did ask him why the police think Scott's guilty and they've been denying the DNA evidence and he was even asking that question himself. And I think that's interesting that why would they deny the DNA testing if they believe he's so guilty and that would just confirm that there's that the suspicion and close the case for good. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see someone that's actually involved in the law process still confused as to why they would refuse to test the DNA. And also, usually when the Ohio Innocence Project is taking on cases, the prisoner or the person that was convicted of the crime reaches out to them, but it was actually Scott's attorney that reached out to them. So I find that interesting that even Scott's attorney believed that he was very innocent and reached out to the Ohio Innocence Project for him. And it just proves that Scott's not the only one that considers himself innocent. Mm -hmm. For those of you that do not know about the Ohio Innocence Project, take some time to look them up. Although in most of our podcasts and research, we are trying to find a suspect of a crime, we also hope that the person convicted of those crimes is the true killer. Unfortunately, we know that innocent people get convicted of crimes they did not commit. The Innocence Project has helped exonerate a large number of wrongfully convicted individuals. They have very high standards when taking on a case that appears to be wrongfully convicted. Considering everyone in jail is probably going to say they didn't do it. One thing that seems to be a trend in wrongful convictions is eyewitness accounts. So should Scott get the chance to appeal his case or to have DNA tests done? Maybe. We did find multiple statements, some anonymous, some not, that suggest that Scott's innocent. However, they have not been proven factual. Out of the 12 statements, six of them claimed the Preble County Sheriff's Department urged them to falsely testify against Scott to reduce some of their own charges. Some claimed that they were brought to isolated locations, another was denied bail and put into solitary confinement until he was asked to forget about the Buckley case. Kevin Gray, the man who was at the bar with Scott and Jason Burkhart, claimed that the conversation between the three of them was in fact false and he was asked to go along with the other guy's story by the sheriff's department in order to convict Scott. If this is true, that is why he was denied testifying, not because he and Scott were friends, but he did not want to lie on stand. There were also some statements that point to the Johnson family, particularly Lisa Johnson, the ex-best friend. John Warren says that they both had ongoing problems and the Johnson family are people to be feared. There was also an anonymous person who claimed to have been with some of the Johnson family the night of the murder. Lisa, Tommy, Ronnie, and then someone named Jimmy Maddox. Johnsons weren't allowed into the party, so the anonymous person went alone to grab some beers. As they were coming back, they saw Lisa Johnson coming from behind the barn next to the lake where Buckley was found and into the car they arrived in, speeding away with Ronnie Johnson and Jimmy Maddox, a friend of theirs, following close behind. Two months later, the anonymous person was at a hog roast at one of the Johnson family's homes. There, they overheard Jay Johnson, Ronnie's dad, claiming that Lisa Johnson should have let the family take care of it, when Jay Johnson then realized the person had overheard his conversation. 
Four months later, the anonymous person got into an accident after losing control of their car, and when they went to the mechanic, they noticed the brakes on their car were cut, suspecting one of the Johnsons were responsible. We have no clue if this is actually true, since it is an anonymous source, but this all just points to how the Johnsons are people to be feared. And it also gives, like, another suspect yeah. to Scott, and I think it wasn't looked into initially in the investigation and I think Scott was just the one focused on and I think to prove that Scott is guilty I think they should look into the Johnson family to see if there is a chance. It did say since it did say the Johnsons were people to be feared I think the police also kind of stayed away from them oh, for that yeah. reasoning so they that's probably why they didn't get invest investigated too much. In this situation I feel like once people start questioning if Scott really did do it, they're gonna look elsewhere. And I mean, cause if Scott didn't do it, who did? And that's the question. And I feel like, it, especially in this case, there's an obvious answer and there's someone that's easy to blame and that's the Johnsons just because of connections that they had with Lisa before. Right, and when you're in a small town, a family like that that is known to do bad things in towns, they become kind of the easy target. We're, we're going to look at this family. And they showed up somewhere where they weren't supposed to be. So that, again, is going to now lead people to say, hey, well, I saw so-and-so leave from behind the barn or something of that nature. So it does kind of open up the door for another option to this crime, especially if Scott is so adamant that he did not do it. We initially were interested in this case because one of our group members has family connections to New Paris, Ohio, and I'd heard about this case growing up. Little did we know how much detail and nuances were in this case and the detail we needed to go into. The case of Lisa Buckley has been a part of the rumor mill for decades now in New Paris, Ohio. What happened and who is responsible for the horrid crimes committed? Is there a chance that Scott was wrongfully convicted? Is someone else possibly at fault? Is Scott guilty of Lisa's murder? Maybe. Even though he seemed to draw attention to himself about her murder, could he possibly be innocent? Possibly. Should the Johnsons be looked into? Probably, but maybe they already were. Unfortunately, what seems to be lost in all this confusion is Lisa. We cannot forget who she was. She was a friend to so many. She was someone's daughter and sibling. She was a young woman that was taken from us way too soon. As of now, Guy Billy Lee Scott is serving time for her murder. But has Lisa and her family really found justice? Unfortunately, we may never know. I would like to thank Davis, Desiree, and Sneha for all the work they did on this case. I would also like to thank Dr. Mark Gotze and all the people at the Ohio Innocence Project for answering our questions and being there when we really needed them. I would also like to thank my co-host Ashlyn. Thank you, Ashlyn, for all the work you do on these podcasts. The artwork for this podcast was created by former MHS student Emma Holbert. The theme song, Cold Case, was written and performed by Miss Jenna Brandt and produced by Noria. This song and all her music can be heard on all music streaming media. The background music for this podcast was from Purple Planet Music. Thank you for listening to Episode 6, The Night the Party Lights Went Out. Tune in next time when we discuss the case of Daniel Trotman. Daniel was a young man out of Columbus, Ohio who was trying to turn his life around when one night falling off the wagon proved to be deadly. Wrong time, wrong place, mistakes. Cold case, now a chase, no breaks.
unsafe is the faith in the faith It's a cold case It's a cold, cold case You're as sick as your secrets And a lie can't conceal Feel eyes on you 